everyone, me again, back from a considerably long hiatus. Did you miss me? Don't bother answering, <laughs> I know you did. Remember how I said I was going to do an episode that would cover the third book in the Harry Potter series? Yeah, I didn't quite do that, did I? Yeah, sorry about that. I was busy with some personal issues, school, family, and all of those things, so... I just couldn't find the time to sit down, write a script, record myself, reading said script, then editing myself, reading the script, you get the idea. And after such a long period of time without posting the episode covering a third book, I just, you know, thought that it would be inappropriate to do so. So instead, here I am, covering the fourth book in the series. You guys better be grateful for this, because this took quite a while to make, so hit the like button, subscribe please, I'm, I'm desperate. But, uh, enough about that, and let's get into it, shall we? Howdy everyone, and welcome back to the Winkleboying Podcast, rated 5 stars on iTunes by Obama. He says, I can't wait to listen to this podcast in the shower. Huh, thank you for the kind rating, former President Obama, but uh, now I've got an image of you taking a shower in my mind, and it just won't go away, so please never speak to me again. Thank you. So to all of you who are new to this podcast, what I do is I read books, and then I review them in an unfashionably late fashion. My fans love me for my voice and hate me for my upload schedule, but uh, you should know that my reviews don't tackle an entire review of the story itself of the book in question. Rather, I focus on certain topics and elements that I personally found interesting, or you know, that added a new layer to the series as a whole, as well as identifying and talking about the main themes I have identified. So to kick things off, let's start with my initial expectations for this book. As you may or may not know, I have watched the movies, however, it was a long, long time ago, so I really don't remember all the details. That being said, I kind of knew what to expect coming into this book. As always, J.K. Rowling follows a certain formula while writing these Harry Potter books. You know, she begins with Harry suffering the Dursleys, then Harry isn't suffering anymore because he's in Hogwarts, shocking development, a lot of stuff in the middle, and then ending with an unexpected twist where we find out that this character, who we trusted, was actually this thing. It's kind of like reaching your hand into a bag of gummy bears, you know. You don't know what flavor you're going to pull out, but you have a general idea of what to expect. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's all gummy bears. But when I read the first chapter of the book and was met with a story that didn't seem to have anything to do with Harry or the Dursleys at all, I was delighted to see that we were breaking away a bit from that formula. It was as if you stuck your hand into a bag of gummy bears, but you pulled out a gummy worm instead. Really great stuff. And the story that was told in that initial chapter set a sort of ominous tone for what's to come later on in the book, as we see Voldemort murdered an old man. And this was a delightful surprise for me, and it made me want to read more. I really liked my expectations being broken. Moving on, I would like to discuss a few things about world building, specifically what was introduced in this book. Firstly, I loved the Quidditch World Cup as an element for world building. It took this idea of Quidditch with our pre-established knowledge of the existence of international teams and exemplified it in full force by treating it to the finals match of the World Cup. And so what this championship does as an element in the world is that it further establishes the idea of sports in the wizarding world. Quidditch was a pre-existing element of the wizarding world, however it wasn't fully explored other than, you know, Ron's mentions of his favorite team and the Quidditch matches between the four different houses in Hogwarts. 
So that it's an element that has been more concretely established with the addition of organized gatherings to watch matches and such. Another world building element that I would like to talk about is the addition of other wizarding schools. You just think with me for a second. Knowing that wizards are spread throughout every continent, the question of the existence of other magical schools should be a no-brainer, right? Especially considering the fact that there are also different ministries of magic for different countries, as was introduced to us during the Quidditch Cup finals when the character of the Bulgarian Minister of Magic was introduced. Which in and of itself is a whole new can of worms. Well, maybe this is just me, but I have never previously thought about the existence of other such schools prior to reading this book. The idea that there are different institutions, each with their own history and different ways of going about things. It's just candy for your brain, which can now run well with imagining schools in different parts of the world. How they might look, how they might function, etc. This is only reinforced by J.K. Rowling's stereotypical, albeit extravagant, portrayal of different cultures. For example, Boubaton, Boubaton, I don't know how to pronounce it, I'm sorry, it's probably offensive to some people, but it's a French school. So the students are all, you know, beautiful and well-clothed, arriving at Hogwarts in a brilliant carriage pulled by a giant white stallion. Meanwhile, as Durmstrang is a Norwegian school, of course, as is customary, they have to arrive in a Viking ships and their students have to be bunchbacks. This is a very prominent complaint expressed towards the movies, since their portrayals of the different schools paints different cultures under an extremely misleading light. But I digress. The extravagant way in which the schools arrive at Hogwarts serves the imagination of how different schools from different parts of the world might arrive. Like, for example, an Indian school might arrive on top of huge, like, 30 meter tall elephants, you know, as an example. But that's just my two that's just my two cents. I'll talk a little bit about this later, but for the moment, let's just continue to something that I was delighted to see being touched upon and expanded in this book. And that thing is Ron and Hermione's relationship with one another. You know, prior to the release of the fourth book in the series, fans had been speculating about possible relationships within the trio. You know, with matchups consisting of Harry and Hermione, Ron and Hermione, and some even suggesting an unlikely relationship between Ron and Harry. However, the only confirmed romantic affection between characters up until that point had been Ginny liking Harry and Harry liking Cho. And if you pay attention, there are certain hints scattered throughout the book about Harry and Hermione's, oh, sorry, Ron and Hermione's future relationship. For example, in page 366 to 367, we see Ron staring at Hermione and Crumb dancing together at the U-Wall, just like slack jaw, just wow, I can't believe it that type of thing, and after Hermione comes to sit down with the rest of them, Ron accuses her of fraternizing with the enemy. What this exchange tells us that at surface level, Ron is mad at Hermione for spending time with Harry's competitor. However, if you, just, if you delve just a little bit deeper into the situation, you find that Ron is actually jealous of Crumb, somebody he idolized for spending time with Hermione. Keep in mind that during this scene, Hermione is just like drop dead gorgeous. Her teeth look splendid, her hair is beautiful, and her dress is a captivating periwinkle blue. And so Ron, at this point in time, as he stares at these two dancing and becoming closer to one another, he can't feel, he can't help but feel a pang of jealousy deep down inside. And on the other side of the spectrum, every moment where Ron has his eye on Fleur, Hermione can be seen rolling her eyes or scowling. And this is exemplified in page 628 where Ron compliments Fleur and Hermione scowls as she smiles at him. 
For the more, a more innocent reaction from Hermione is when Ron asks Crumb for his autograph, and she turns away smiling in page 629. Now, I'm no love expert, but I'd say these are definite omens for things to come between these two. That being said, let's take a quick look at Crumb's character and contrast his portrayal in the book to his portrayal in the movie. On one hand, you have this guy who isn't very manly. He, he's not very good looking and kind of looks like a bird of prey. You know, he's someone who, despite not being very bright, he spends a lot of time in the library. He's awkward, but he is very sensible and he's very gentleman-like with Hermione. He sees beauty in her. He makes her feel good and listens to her intently. He's aware of his emotions and acknowledges them. And more importantly, he is kind. On the other hand, you have this very shallow depiction of a character who is ripped as hell, supposedly charismatic and confident. Instead of speaking to Hermione, he uses his magical manly testosterone exerting magic manliness to drag her to the Yule Ball. So on one hand, you have this lovable oath, and on the other, you have a guy who is an ultimate chad. I don't think I have to explain which depiction comes from which form of media because I think it's very obvious, but I'll say it anyway. The first description is crumb in the book and the second is, you know, crumb in the movie. Just look at how they massacred my boy. The movie grabbed his character, stripped away any depth and injected them with an elephant dose of steroids and testosterone. But uh, at this point, I think I've discussed several smaller points that I found interesting in the book. However, I think that now it's time to tackle my interpretations of the book's main themes, of which there are three. And to begin with, I would like to discuss the dangers of seeking glory. As you know, the Triwizard Tournament is a competition between three schools who appoint champions to fulfill certain tasks, and the one who performs the best wins the cup. And there are obvious reasons as to why you would want to become the champion, right? Personal fame and fortune, glory for yourself and for your school. But is it possible that such things come without some sort of sacrifice? Well, of course it isn't. The path to glory is one who blinds and corrupts one's true character, which is exactly the case of Harry. Throughout the competitions, the champions entangle themselves in the web of lies, secrets, and cheating, summed together by the desire for personal glory. Due to the peculiar circumstances, Harry is at a steep disadvantage right off the bat. He isn't as experienced as the other champions. This disadvantage leads him to needing to cheat and rely on the help of others to manage to survive the tasks. I mean, just think about it. The only reason he survived the first task is because Hermione sacrificed her own free time to help him master the summoning charm. And during the second time, it was Dobby who saved him by providing Harry with some gillyweed. Not to mention that all these things happened solely because Barty Crash Jr. was pulling the strings from behind the curtains. However, Harry's determination to survive ultimately culminated in the determination to win by the third task. Up until that point, he was fighting to survive, but he was excelling at the tasks, and he felt as if he had a genuine shot at winning. And this dilemma culminates at the end of the third task where Harry is faced with a choice. Should he let Cedric win, or should he take the cup for himself? For all means, Cedric was the true victor in the situation. It was his noble nature and his gratitude towards Harry for saving him against Crumb that made him hesitate. And so, upon being faced with the, gr with the prospect of winning, Harry allows himself to momentarily be blinded by his desire for glory. And take a look at what was written on page 550. Quote, For one shining moment, he saw himself emerging from the maze, holding it. He saw himself holding the Triwizard Cup aloft. He heard the crowd of he heard the roar of the crowd, saw Show's face shining with admiration, more clearly than he had ever seen it before. End quote. Harry makes his decision. He would share the cup despite Cedric being the true champion. 
and you can argue that Barty Crouch Jr. ensured that Harry made it to the end of the first task to guarantee the success of Voldemort's plan. However, he had no part in the decision-making process that ultimately led Harry to share the cup and resulted in the death of the innocent Cedric Diggory. The death of Cedric nurtures a sense of extreme guilt within Harry, as he is never seen truly happy for the rest of the book. This leads to the conclusion that seeking glory poses a serious risk of self-corruption, a momentary twist of character that leads to a more severe consequences down the road. Uh, are, are you guys still with me? <laughs> Please be still with me. Uh, I hope so, because we still have two more themes to go. Now, speaking of which, the next one I would like to talk about is the clash between intolerance and tolerance. Remember how I mentioned I liked how the story began with the murder of an innocent old man? Well, I didn't just like it because it was a change of pace. The Goblet of Fire further ramps up the conflict of the Harry Potter series, the fight between tolerance and intolerance. Voldemort as a character is the embodiment of intolerance, representing a hate for mudbloods and muggles for their lack of pure wizard blood. And this is exemplified in full force at the beginning of the book with his murder of an innocent old muggle, you know, an innocent old man. It's a heavy way to begin a story, for sure, the murder of an innocent old man to display the prejudice and intolerance of Voldemort. Yet at the same time, we have this story element of Hermione, who is standing at the opposite end of the spectrum as she pursues the freedom of house elves from their enslavement and pushes for their equality. And so there are two established ideas here that are competing with one another. Viewing someone who's different as inferior, which is Voldemort's view of muggles, and viewing someone who's different as equal, which is Hermione's view of house elves. However, my dear listeners, it's important to keep in mind that the current stance among wizards and witches is that they see muggles in the house elves as inferior to them. That's the majority, that's the consensus, let's, let's call it that. And while this may be true, it isn't really a dispute about who's superior, rather it's looking at how an individual treats their inferiors and surmising what that says about their character itself. It's as Sirius said himself on page 456, if you want to know, man, if you want to know what a man's like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. And although Hermione's defiance against intolerance through the spew campaign is solely directed towards house elves, and it isn't very popular to begin with, it still stands to reason that this mindset towards equality and tolerance is the very thing that mirrors the rise of intolerance through Voldemort's resurgence and the death of Cedric Diggory at the end of this book. Bear with me guys because we just have one more thing to talk about before we wrap this episode up. And it is the third and final theme I've identified in this book is the choice between what's right and what's easy. Following the death of Cedric Diggory and the return of Voldemort, Dumbledore foresees the dark times that lie ahead for the wizarding world, right? And as such, he recognizes that individuals will soon be faced with a difficult choice, as he announces on page 628 to everyone present in the Great Hall. Quote, If the time should come when you have to make a good choice, a choice between what is right and what is easy, remember what happened to a boy who was good and kind and brave because he strayed across the path of Lord Voldemort, period, end quote. Dumbledore's, Dumbledore's words here are powerful. He is a wise wizard who understands that in the years to come, people shall be forced to reveal the true character as they decide to either stand with or against Voldemort. And let me tell you guys what, it's hard not to side with Voldemort. Like, this decision is the equivalent of driving a Lamborghini plated in gold down a two-mile, newly paved straightway to arrive at a New York one-star motel with rat burgers for dinner. Or, 
You can take a 20-mile hike through treacherous winding roads filled with danger to arrive at a gorgeous five-star hotel in Dubai. Now, Voldemort offers you security, reverence, and power, and even a sort of twisted form of fame. While on the other hand, you can side with those who fight against injustice, facing nearly certain death for a better future. And although the latter choice is indeed the harder one, it is undoubtedly the right one, which makes the easy choice the wrong one by default. And in light of these terrifying events, you know, the rise of Voldemort, the death of an innocent and noble young lad, Dumbledore reminds us of the importance of choosing what is right versus what is easy, so that we may band together against a common enemy and build a brighter future for ourselves in the long run. And with that, guys, I have finally completed my review of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I really hope you have enjoyed it, as I have put in a lot of time and effort bringing this to you and uh, for your, you know, listening experience. So please don't forget to leave a good review and rating as it does help me out quite a bit. And hopefully I'll have another episode for you guys to listen to soon. I would like to once again thank you for your time and I will see you all in the next one. Cheers.